Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, a channel with the New Books Network. I'm your co-host, Shahna Saqani. Today, we have a conversation with co-editors Naveen Rida and Yasmin Amin about their groundbreaking book, Islamic Interpretive Tradition and Gender Justice, Processes of Canonization, Subversion and Change, published with McGill in 2020. This exciting book comprises 10 chapters organized into three sections, the Qur'an and its interpretation, figurative representation, hadith, and biographical dictionaries, and finally, fiqh and its application. The volume brilliantly and carefully responds to criticisms against Islamic feminism, such as the claim that Islamic feminist scholarship lacks methodological rigor. Some of the overarching themes that each chapter in the volume shares are providing more ethical and egalitarian interpretations of gendered verses in the Qur'an and interrogating the idea of canonization in Islam. Each author accomplishes this by challenging the unfounded assumption of an established canon in the Islamic tradition, by raising questions about what ijma or consensus is and if it has ever existed on a given issue, and or by using the methodologies of pre-modern male scholars of Islam only to produce significantly different interpretations on the same matter. Plot twist, am I right? Among the topics covered are polygamy, divorce, child marriage, women's public participation, interreligious marriage, stoning, and really so much more. In my conversation with Yasmin Amin and Naveen Rida, we discussed the major contributions of the book, the process of compilation, what the authors mean by decanonization and by subverting the canon if one exists, some of the specific chapters of the book, such as on child marriage, polygamy, and biographies of women, and the question of ethical interpretations of the Qur'an in the context of gender. This here is our conversation. Hello, Yasmin and Naveen. Thank you both so much for being here, to uh, joining me to talk about this excellent, excellent new volume that you two have just produced together called Islamic Interpretive Tradition and Gender Justice, Processes of Canonization, Subversion, and Change, which I very thoroughly enjoyed. So thank you both for being here to talk about it with us. Thank you so much for inviting us. I'm delighted to be with you on this podcast today. And uh, thank you so much for asking us. Yes, I second that. (laughs) So um, our tradition here on the podcast is to begin our discussion first with your intellectual journeys. And so, Naveen, we can begin with you. Tell us about um, your journey, how you got to where you are now, uh, who you are, what kind of scholarship you tend to produce. Um, and just generally about your, give us your intellectual biography. Okay, so um, I'm uh, originally actually an engineer. I did uh, engineering at Cairo University. And when we came to Canada, I decided I didn't want to work in engineering anymore. And I wanted to study religions. And uh, so I, uh, you know, there was no uh, Islamic law at the University of Toronto at that point in time. And I got really interested in studying Hebrew Bible. So that's what I did. And then our, uh, the supervisor uh, 
retired and they couldn't replace him. So I decided to focus on the Quran, uh, which is actually my passion. So, um, so my main specialization is Quranic studies, and I also work in the area of Islamic thought, and uh, certainly also usul al-fiqh, which is uh, ethical legal theory, but I also have a, a minor specialization in biblical Hebrew language and literature. So um, I, I work in mostly in Quranic studies, but uh, gender and Islam tends to be one of the areas that I'm very passionate about. Passionate about. And I like to work with other people um, to produce collective works like the one that you've seen, particularly in the area of gender. When it comes to monographs or things like that, I tend to do my own thing. Thank you for that. Yasmin? I also come to Islamic studies from a different discipline. Um, <clears throat> I first studied uh, business administration and computer science. And then when I was 35, I got a birthday present, which was a book that really aggravated me. It was Why I'm Not a Muslim by Ibn Warraq. And it aggravated me because I didn't know the answers to many of the things that uh, he said. And so I started reading about uh, my own heritage and my own religion. And the questions kept coming. I had more questions than answers. So then I decided to go back to school and study this um, to be able to answer the questions for myself. And uh, I specialize on hadith because that was my main problem in the Islamic uh, tradition because uh, I believe strongly that the Prophet was not schizophrenic and he didn't say everything and it's opposite. So I wanted to be able to uh, sift the hadith for myself and be, be, because, I mean, the Quran enjoins us to take what the Prophet gives us so that partly hadith belongs into that uh, uh, what into what he has given us. So I wanted to be able to judge for myself what I can live with and what I can't and why. I mean, it's not that I'm going to disregard hadith just because it uh, um, injures my sensibilities, but I needed to find the way to justify why it injures my uh, sensibilities and what I can do about that. So I started very late and... Uh, I, I did a postgraduate diploma in Islamic studies with a focus on hadith and then an MA with a focus on hadith and then a PhD with a focus on hadith. So um, I've just finished my PhD and here I am. Well, thank you both because, and, and, and it shows in um, in the kinds of research, in, it's, and we'll talk about your individual chapters in a bit, but um, your expertise comes off very excellently and very clearly in the chapters that you've uh, written as well. So thank you both for that. So tell us now about the origins of this book. Um, I imagine our audience would want to know why now, uh, what makes this volume different from other works on Islam and gender, especially stuff that's been produced in the past few years. So Yasmin, you can go first this time. Uh, the book grew out of a panel uh, created by Mulki Sharmani and Umayma Abu Bakr, who have a chapter in the book. Uh, it was uh, at a conference, uh, and uh, the original contributors are all in the book. It was Niveen, Huda Saadi, uh, Mulki and Umayma and myself. And the panel was a great success in the conference, so we decided that uh, we need to expand on it and turn this into a book. And uh, this is what happened. What makes the book different is that we 
actually work from within the tradition. We don't uh, um, work from outside. We use the same methodologies used by the traditional scholars, but we ask different questions and we also arrive at different results. So uh, we were trying to show that the Islamic tradition is very, very rich. It uh, covers so many different geographical areas. It uh, covers a very long time. So it within that Islamic tradition, there are the tools that can be used to adapt and reform and uh, improve. So this is what I believe makes our book different. Can I just say, um, before Naveen, you go... I- I loved Omeima's and Mulki's chapter. It was just equally excellent. I mean, it, all of the chapters really are. Um, but the, it, you know, it's the whole the whole question of um, so they write about divorce and the question of you know it's Islamic but is it ethical? Which I'm I think Yasmin and I have talked about that question a lot as well. Um, but loved their contribution to the to the chapter to the to the volume as well. Um, and Naveen, you can uh, if you have anything add to add to that. Um, maybe yes. Um... Many of the contributors are actually active in uh, Islamic feminist networks and movements. So many of the issues that are are discussed in this particular volume are issues that are vital for Muslim women all over the world. Uh, But again, the Islamic feminist movement um, did not uh, grow uh, in isolation from other discourses. And I think you see that in the book right at the very beginning, which begins with a conversation between May Ziyadah and between Malak Hefni Masif. So uh, we also have contributors who are not Muslim and who do not work from within the Islamic tradition, but who are in conversation with it. So that's also something that makes it quite special. Um, I like also uh, a lot the uh, focus on canonization that actually stems from uh, Mulki Sharmani and, uh, and Umayma Abu Bakr and the title that they chose for that particular panel. Uh, because if you... Um, Look at the Islamic tradition. Um, one of the ways in which it distinguishes itself from uh, other traditions is the fact that we don't have uh, or, or ordained religious clergy, or uh, mostly in the Sunni tradition, there's there are no ordained uh, clergy, no religious elite uh, that are able to canonize texts and figures and laws. However, despite that fact, we have all the uh, uh, characteristics of uh, canonization. So uh, it's uh, what I like about this particular title that was Mulki's and Umayma's title is the, the fact that it draws attention to this paradox that we have in our history. Uh, and it's also a way of uh, challenging this uh, the, the, the canonical status of so many different interpretations uh, by bringing uh, new ideas that are also very strongly uh, grounded methodologically within the tradition, but that also uh, explore new methodologies that make sense in today's world. No, for me, one of the major, and I will come back to the idea of canonization and the different very, very significant ways that every chapter subverts this idea of canonization and response to that. For me, one of the major contributions of the book is that it directly responds, and again, with excellent evidence, to the claim that Muslim feminists or feminist scholars of Islam don't operate within an Islamic framework, whatever the heck that means, or that Muslim feminist interpretive methods are questionable and invalid. So can you speak to can you speak some more about the lack of serious engagement with Muslim feminist scholarship in, say, Islamic studies or the different ways that Muslim feminists are dismissed and ignored? Um, and the sorts of critiques that are leveled against, um, you know, Muslim Islamic feminism that this book addresses. 
Uh, Naveen, you can go first this time. Okay. Hmm. That's a really uh, good question. Um, uh, I remember once I uh, submitted an article at a peer-reviewed journal, and uh, one of the responses from the peer reviewers was that I shouldn't be using the word Islamic feminism uh, because such a thing doesn't exist, and I should use the word Muslim feminists instead. Um, so uh, you're right, uh, it is a problem both in uh, academic uh, scholarship today, uh, but also in the Muslim world, uh, where sometimes Islamic feminists are portrayed as something you know less than authentic. Uh, one of the really nice things about Islamic feminism is that it shows that the first feminist was actually the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, since he did so many things to advance uh, women's rights and uh, to uh, ensure that women, uh, you know, were equally treated within society. So, uh, so uh, again, um, uh, in my own work, and uh, I think uh, it's not only in my own work, but I've also seen it at conferences in the Muslim world, uh, one of the ways in which uh, Islamic feminist scholarship is challenged is by the notion that we are unaware of methodology or that we um, don't engage in methodology in the proper way. So uh, this particular book debunks these notions uh, to some, in some way or other and shows really the problems within methodology and uh, that, yes, we do have great ideas in the tradition when it comes to methodology, but they're not applied. Um, and that's not unusual because uh, the practice of things like fiqh, like uh, ethical legal uh, reasoning, tends to come first and then the theories about how to do these practices. Uh, and, but, but then they're, they're not revisited. Uh, the rulings are not revisited to ensure that they actually adhere to these uh, different methodological ideas. So that's not unusual, um, but it uh, happens to be one of the features of uh, our tradition. Yasmin? I don't have much to add except uh, maybe to point out that not all contributors identify as feminists. Nothing against feminists, of course, but um, um, I mean... I am one of them, and, and there are a few others. Uh, but uh, what I see as one of the contributions of feminism uh, is, uh, well, Islamic feminism or Muslim feminism, <laughs> is that um, they don't shy away from uh, asking thorny questions and, on, uh, uh, and uh, also from entering uncharted grounds. Because, um, unfortunately, the main bulk of uh, uh, scholarship is uh, not really uh, entering new grounds or questioning or challenging. It's mainly rehashing uh, things and accepting the status quo. And this is one thing that I admire the feminists for, that they actually rock the boat. And only with rocking the boat can we change things. And we cannot change things without going back into history because a lot of the problems that we have today have their roots in the history, like you know, child marriage or domestic violence or uh, silencing the women or uh, you know, uh, stoning and uh, and uh, uh, unequal uh, and unjust divorces, uh, abusing the rights uh, or claiming rights that. Uh, don't really exist and can be challenged. So this is uh, why uh, I was very happy to join this uh, group uh, of feminists and activists. 
So speaking of methodology, which I mean, it's again, I think this book does such an excellent job responding to that claim that, you know, that Muslim feminists or, that, or women, when women write about Islam or produce scholarship on Islam, they're not as methodologically valid or rigorous as apparently the historical male um, scholarly tradition is. So one thing, one, one of the common themes that I see in the chapters here is that, and it's one of my personal favorite things about this chapter, partly because I do it in my own scholarship, is to use the methodology and the approaches of pre-modern scholars themselves only to produce completely different results, right? Or to, to partly because you're asking different questions, but even when you're asking the same questions that they do, you still come up with a whole different conclusions and uh, a whole different conclusion and interpretation um, by, and, and in doing so, the chapters then challenge the validity of the claim that these men's opinions or interpretations are necessarily more correct because they used a particular methodology that apparently feminists aren't using. So I would love for our audiences to get a get some specific examples of this. Uh, Yasmin, we can begin with you. So in your chapter on child or minor marriage in Islam, you use a, a wonderfully wide range of sources to refute the historical approaches to, or the ways that child marriage is talked about and justified using apparently even the Quranic verses. I, is it, I forget, was it 4-3? Yeah, 65-4. Um, and, and you use both, 65-4, the 4 three is for the, uh, that's for the, uh, that's for the polygamy verse, Never mind. Um, and so, and, and again, the, all of the chapters do this in some way or another. So how, um, T- tell us, tell us about the arguments that you make in this chapter, because I think you have some really excellent, um, res- excellent ways of challenging sort of the, even the hadith, the, the the validity of the hadith that Aisha is six years old at the time of marriage and nine at consummation and so on. So it was very important for me to use the methodology that they used, uh, especially since the argument is always that fiqh is based on the Quran and the Sunnah and then Qiyas and Ijma'. So this is what I started with. I looked at the hadith and I found out that the hadith is munqati'ah. It stops with Aisha. So technically, and as per their own um, definition, it should be an, a, a khabar and not a hadith and ruling shouldn't be based on it. So, But I didn't use this argument in the book because I know that uh, it will uh, end up with a huge... Uh, uh, criticism. So I used the methods of the Hadith scholars themselves to evaluate the Hadith. And um, it's uh, I only used Al-Bukhari because uh, there are 86 versions in total, or uh, give or take a few. And uh, I, I used Al-Bukhari since it is uh, as, uh, described as the most authentic book uh, after the Quran. Um, and there are seven versions in there, and they all go back to Hisham ibn Uruq. And uh, Muslim scholars themselves classified Hisham ibn Urwa as a modalis. So uh, how this hadith became um, the basis for a ruling when he is a modalis is beyond me. So, uh, and then uh, also the, the hadith makes reference to 65-4. Uh, and uh, I also used the same methodology uh, that they used, uh, linguistic, etymological, and all of that, and uh, juxtaposed this to uh, the conclusion that they uh, came up with, that a, a portion of this hadith refers to little girls. And um, I hope I, I managed to prove that this is not so. And uh, the, the thing also that uh, struck me was that in the heritage books, uh, Aisha is mentioned to have been born in Jahileya. So even if we uh, uh, do the math, the math doesn't add up because if she's born in Jahiliya, 
she, she would be a minimum of 15. That is, if she was born in the last minute of Jahiliya. And, uh, of course, the usual uh, answer to that is that, uh, yes, but the uh, history books, they don't have an isnad and uh, um, they, they are not as accurate as the hadith and so on. But uh, it's not just one mention. It's uh, There are many mentions in the history books that she was born in Jahiliya, that she was named in Jahiliya, that there are di- 10 years difference between her and Asma, and Asma's age is stated. So it, it's not one version um, in the history books. There are so many different versions that put her age anything between 19 and 22. So where did they come up with the six and nine? Um, and then uh, I um, I also use the, the, the fiqh. Uh, I mean, there are so many fantastic uh, <laughs> maxims in fiqh, like la darar wa la darar, no harming and no counter-harming. But the harm to the child bride is never discussed. Or dar uh, al-mafasid muqaddam ala galb al-manafi'ah, you know, um, avoiding... Uh, um, 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 oh my God, now I can't translate it. Anyhow, that the benefits uh, should come second. Uh, but uh, also benefits for the child bride herself uh, are nil. The, the benefits only go to the husband who ends up with a bride uh, or the father who pockets the dowry. But but there are no benefits for the bride. And uh, and then also what aggravated me was the, the, the use of offensive words like uh, when can they uh, marry off a little girl when she when she can endure intercourse. So... The, the, this in and of itself is an offensive phrasing because why should she be enduring something that God gave as a gift? Pleasure is acknowledged in uh, in uh, in Islamic literature. So uh, and also you know the maqasid, the 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 divine intentions uh, to preserve life and health and and progeny and and progeny and and wealth and faith and so on. Uh, actually, everything about child marriage is against uh, these maqasid because there is harm to the bride, to her offspring, and also the maslaha concept, you know, the benefit. that There is absolutely no benefit for the, for the bride. And then I also juxtaposed this to modern medicine because um, doing an ishtihad, I wanted to be as comprehensive as possible. And modern uh, medicine shows that... Uh, you know the, the the harms to the child bride and to her offspring. They they uh, children born to children are usually having low birth weight, uh, short lifespan, and so on. They're not healthy, so this is also against the maqasid. So for the life of me, I couldn't really understand how they uh, made this possible. And going back to the Quran, there are so many different uh, verses that actually uh, go against uh, reading this verse in this way, because the Quran does distinguish between Benet uh, women and the girls. So how, how they uh, put in the girls in under the umbrella of the women is uh, was just uh, uh, inexplicable to me. And then also the, the ijma', you know, the ijma' is a, is a huge problem because uh, there is actually no ijma'. There is no 
إجماع on what إجماع is whether it is the إجماع of the scholars or the إجماع of the community or the إجماع of the imams or the إجماع of whom who exactly and then also how long this إجماع is valid for is it for all eternity or does it have an expiry date and um, I, I, I think that إجماع is, is really very problematic and then uh, we can have an, a new إجماع and and uh, revisit the issues that are problematic for uh, not just for women or or children but for minorities uh, of different types and so on and uh, we wanted to create a conversation and by using a multidisciplinary approach i think that uh, uh, this strengthened the argument oh for sure I, I, just, I also can't get over the fact that, you know, the way that they insert, um, you know, uh, language and explanations into Quranic verses. And I think 60, your example of 65.4 is an excellent one, um, you know, where the, the translation of Wallahi lam yahidna, they say something like, well, it, the word yet is not in that text, but they'll add that. And so those women who have not yet menstruated, instead of simply women who don't menstruate or who are not menstruating or um, you know, for whatever reason, but they they use, they use the word yet there to justify then um, the you know practices of child marriage. Thank you for that. Um, in Naveen, in your chapter, you explore Tabari's and Ibn Taymiyyah's methodological principles to uh, again to also disagree with with their conclusions um, in the context of polygamy. So tell us about the arguments that you're raising um, in this chapter, and I don't know your responses to the supposed uh, superior methodology of these veil scholars. Oh, um, well, first of all, I uh, look at uh, how the interpretation of the Quran became rigid and fixed, um, a process that uh, I think is a, is a great example for canonization in the Islamic tradition, uh, where you have the interpretations of select scholars that lived in the first and early second centuries of Islam, and, and that were collected at a later time, at a century or more than that, uh, after that, that were collected. And then um, these became the canon for interpretations uh, later on. Uh, one of the uh, interesting uh, arguments that Tabari, who collected uh, these interpretations, or one of those who collected these interpretations, one of the interesting arguments that he brings forward is that they really know the Arabic language well, uh, and they understood the Quran. Uh, but however, if you actually look at the interpretations that he brings forward for the polygamy verse, which is verse 4-3, they don't actually fit the literal meaning of the text. Um, for example, uh, the word in, uh, uh, in in the Arabic language is a conditional. It means if. However, they kind of change uh, the meaning of that in some of their interpretations to just as kema, for example, uh, just to remove the force of the conditional. So uh, these interpretations don't actually fit the literal meaning of the text. So uh, when you look at Tabari's argument that, yes, we should only stick to these because these are the ones who really understood the Quran, it doesn't, uh, doesn't make uh, a lot of sense. I mean, these traditions are valuable because they reflect the reception of the Quran in the early centuries of Islam. Uh, but one shouldn't, uh, I don't think that we should confine ourselves and our interpretations to them. Um, Ibn Taymiyyah also is a very important scholar uh, because uh, he actually uh, reversed uh, uh, At-Tabari's argument. Like At-Tabari used the language argument, 
uh, Ibn Taymiyyah uh, doesn't um, think think very highly of language-based approaches to the Quran. So uh, he makes the argument that uh, these early individuals, they must have heard uh, these interpretations from the Prophet. And uh, also the second century in- individuals, they must somehow have received their imprita- interpretations uh, via someone who must have heard them from the Prophet or something like that. So he practically treats them as hadith, which would have been unthinkable in the uh, in Tabari's day and age. Again, there are several centuries between Ibn Taymiyyah and Tabari, but it's really Ibn Taymiyyah's hermeneutics and his vision of how uh, one should interpret the Quran. Uh, that's the one that really holds uh, sway today. One of the really fascinating uh, things about Tabari is um, that he has actually has some really great. Uh, methodological principles and ideas, like, uh, for example, al-a'tibar which means uh, basically that one should uh, go with a co- with accordance to the generality of the wording, the actual uh, literal meaning of the text, as opposed to uh, the occasion of revelation and uh, uh, what that might say. Although, of course, one has to note that the Occasions of revelations tend to be very short uh, anecdotes, and they don't give a lot of context uh, often, and uh, they're very difficult to interpret as well. So um, if you look at uh, the way uh, some interpreters interpret the first condition for polygamy, uh, which is in Arabic, if you fear, um, and then the word qust means equity or social justice. So if you fear that you're unable to do justice to yatama, uh, uh, then uh, marry two or three or four. And so that's the primary condition. And there are others in that uh, first verse, in that one verse. So if you look at uh, that particular um, condition, uh, the word yatama in the Arabic language uh, is often tr- translated into English as orphans, uh, but it actually means uh, children who have no father, but it is also linguistically used for adults, certainly for the widow. And you see that in ancient poetry, you see that in another verse of the Quran. So what this verse is actually saying, if you fear um, being unable to do justice to widows and orphans, uh, uh, then marry two or three or four. Um, but what's fascinating is that some interpreters interpreted uh, that phrase, yatama in this one um, sentence to mean uh, little girls, uh, little uh, fatherless girls. Uh, So uh, even though that word in this same passage and everywhere else in the Quran is a masculine plural in the sense that it's a word that includes both uh, girls and boys. Uh, If this were a word that was a uh, feminine plural, so only little girls, um, it, it would have taken a different form, yetimet, and it would have been treated diff- differently grammatically in that, uh, in that passage. So it's clearly a masculine plural. However, they remove uh, the boys from this uh, construction uh, because they uh, want to change the meaning from if you want to do justice to uh, widows and orphans, uh, for example, in times of war or something like that. Uh, they want to change, ch- change the meaning to if you are afraid that you might not give them their uh, appropriate bridal gift. So instead of that verse being about polygamy, 
they make it about giving uh, little girls their appropriate bri bridal gifts. So there's so much that's wrong with that interpretation. Um, and I kind of uh, tease out some of the problems uh, in that uh, in that uh, particular uh, interpretations or these particular interpretations using the very same methodology that Atabari uh, talked about, uh, and also some of the uh, methodological principles that Ibn Taymiyyah talked about. Uh, and, and these people could think. I mean, they uh, said interesting things and important things. However, if you look at uh, the way they apply them, uh, that tends to be quite problematic. So uh, that's kind of how I've challenged this particular, uh, these particular interpretations, and I've pointed out in the article that if we're going that the uh, norm, the ontological norm, is uh, uh, is in the story of Adam and Eve, uh, one man and one woman. Uh, but if we want to uh, talk about exceptions to that norm, and the exception that we have in uh, that's given as an example in uh, that surah, uh, which is polygamy, it talks about three uh, ethical directives that that can be that are competing with one another and that we need to think about these very seriously when we're talking about uh, non-normative marriages so um the first is uh, social justice to vulnerable populations and cer certainly widows and orphans the other is equality between all marriage partners and uh, we see that that these two are in tension with one another and also uh, free consent that all parties have to consent freely and feel good about uh, this arrangement. So uh, I think uh, today we are uh, interested and we can understand these ethical imperatives uh, a lot better and identify with them. In uh, Tabari and Ibn Taymiyyah's day and age, um, they cared also about ethics, but they had other uh, priorities like uh, equal bridal gifts to uh, uh, fatherless girls. Does that answer your question? Oh yes, it does. Excellent. <laughs> I wanted I wanted an excuse for you both to talk about your chapters, and um, and and that happened. So thank you for that. Um, so and, and other all the other chapters are also such excellent examples of the partly the the flawed methodology or using the the methodology of the scholars, but arriving at different conclusions, um, or you know the flawed interpretations, I guess, of the commentators. Uh, my personal favorites, which are many, included, I think, Amina, was it Amina who wrote the chapter on um, on how Eve got, or how did Eve get married? Yes. Uh, oh, I loved that chapter. It was, yeah. I just, I mean, I had, I heard, I had, I have the words WTF written on like almost every page and every chapter, because um, it's just, there's such, so much nonsense really in the tradition, right? And so um, just, again, cannot, cannot recommend this book enough to people. Um, and then are there any other, other chapters or other authors here that you would want to Oh, I also loved the chapter on, um, oh my God, I forget whose it, uh, whose it was, but on, um, oh, the the model Muslim woman chapters were just, were wonderful. And then Amira, and then also uh, talking about uh, the women, women's sexuality and women's public presence and the, the different ways, it, the ways that ideas of sexuality are, you know, women end up, or female sexuality is understood differently in different time periods, but in all of those understandings, women are the ones who are affected uh, negatively. And so when women are the reason, when women are um, the potential source of fitna and they have such a high sex drive, we keep them hidden. We don't keep the men hidden. 
Um, and then later on, some centuries later, when men are the ones who are the problem and they're the ones with the highest sex drive, we keep the women hidden still because we're going to protect them from the men. <laughs> just, I, I love these, love these contradictions and patriarchy is just, it's, it's full of contradictions. But are there any, any chapters, any authors that you would, uh, you want to give a shout out to or, um, sort of, uh, I don't know, emphasize in, in, uh, but I, I don't want to put you on the spot and I know that all of the contributors are equally Uh, yes, so, I would like to, but if you to want speak to... about the chapter by Doris Decker because she applies a new methodology in reading hadith. And I found this to be really amazing because she traces uh, one hadith about the love story between uh, the Prophet and uh, Rayhana, the Jewish woman. And she traces the hadith uh, versions, the different ones, uh, to arrive at uh, how the story was manipulated from Rayhana who was a really strong, independent woman who refused to marry the Prophet because of the restrictions placed on his wives that she couldn't deal with, and uh, someone who didn't want to convert and leave her religion, to someone who um, was uh, really sad that, and nagging for him to marry her and, and, and all of that. Uh, so I, I believe that this chapter uh, deserves a shout-out for... Uh, Uh, because, of course, uh, Doris worked it extremely uh, well, but also uh, because it opens up a new way of looking at hadith. Because, you know, authenticity is, uh, for me at least, is so what? I mean, we have a hadith, it's authentic or it's not authentic, and then what? It doesn't help us deal with anything. But if you put in uh, all the versions of a particular hadith and use it, uh, and then uh, ignore the isnid, you know, and um, work with the matna only. You can see how things were added to the matna and how things were deleted from the matna. And then when you juxtapose this to the context around the time of the collector who collected this hadith, the political context, the ideological context, even the rise of certain uh, literary genres uh, when uh, the, or canonization of certain things, all this affects the hadith uh, production, um, the, the the small manipulations to the matna. I mean, the kernel is still there, right? But uh, also the geographical location, how this affects the, the, the narrators and, and what they focus on. So this is, uh, for me, a really uh, interesting way forward in dealing with hadith. Because it says a lot more about the thought processes of the collectors and the hadith uh, scholars, then it uh, uh, it says whether hadith is authentic or not, doesn't tell us anything. Mm -hmm. oh, thank you for that. Uh, Naveen, is there anyone you want to give a shout out to? Um, actually, uh, I want to uh, comment on what um, uh, Yasmin just said, because I know that Yasmin used the same methodology in her work on Umm Salama. Uh, uh, in Hadith al-Kisa' where she used so many different versions and made this connection uh, between uh, the different uh, versions and certain historical circumstances in th that point to why these changes, uh, minute changes in the content of the Hadith were made. And uh, I like uh, a, a certain expression that she once told me, which was that Hadith was the social media of the, of the day and age, which I absolutely love. But I From, when, when it comes to all these uh, contributors, I think every one of them brings a different perspective because they are 
all with such a diverse uh, range of expertise. So we have someone who works in Sharia and Fiqh, like uh, uh, Dr. Sara uh, Tantawi. I mean, her chapter is superb. Uh, we have a historian like uh, Dr. Huda Saadi. Her chapter is superb. We have Amira, Tanta, uh, Amira Abu Talib, who's working in uh, biographical dictionaries. Uh, we have so so every single uh, one of those uh, chapters brings something unique to the conversation and a different angle uh, from a slightly uh, different area of expertise. So I have to say I really love them all. Definitely Doris is, is great. Uh, so are yeah. all the other ones. Aisha Geisinger's is superb when she looks at uh, Sufat al-Safwa of uh, Ibn al-Jawzi. Um, they're all uh, superb. And sure. I really enjoyed working with them uh, a great deal. For sure. And it shows. Thank you both. So the theme of, can- I want to talk about canonization now. Um, it, it, it's given away in the title as well. It's, it's really, it really powerfully and brilliantly figures in each of the chapters um, and, and the whole volume is very critical of the idea of canonization, whether in the Sunni or the Shiite traditions, um, which don't view canonization the same way. So can you tell us about the different ways that Sunni and Shiite scholars have conceptualized the idea of the canon um, in, throughout, throughout Islamic history? And what are some critiques that you have of how canons are created and developed and regulated? Um, and Naveen, since Yasmin went first last time, you can go first now. Okay, so um, very often, uh, so canons develop in different ways, like the Quranic canon developed uh, of interpretations developed differently from the various different hadith canons, so uh, different from the biographical canons, different from the legal canons. So they each kind of um, have their own uh, distinctive uh, history in how they are developed. But very often uh, you find that the argument that sustains them is the notion of ijma, which means consensus. So the notion that uh, the consensus of the scholars, uh, that they've all agreed that this is uh, the, the canon and therefore one can't touch it, uh, and uh, that their consensus uh, doesn't err. And I think Yasmin addressed that also earlier today. Uh, what I want to point out, uh, you know, reiterate some of what Yasmin has said, is that if you look at the different scholars that have actually worked on the notion of ijma, you find that they actually contradict each other quite profoundly. And these are some of the biggest names we have in, uh, in fiqh and sharia. Like, for example, Malik ibn Anas, he's the eponym of the Maliki school. And he conceptualizes consensus as the consensus of the people of Medina, you know, a distinct geographical location which happened to be the city of the prophet, peace be upon him. And then you have a Shafi'i, who was actually Malik's student, and he's also the eponym of a very important uh, school of Islamic jurisprudence. And he uh, disagrees with him profoundly and says, no, uh, consensus is the, 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 uh, uh, the generality of all Muslims, not just the people in Medina. Uh, and then you have uh, people like Ibn Hazm and people like Al-Ghazali who say, no, consensus is the consensus of the scholars only. And of course, it's very difficult to define who is a scholar and who isn't. So uh, again, these uh, different uh, notions of consensus uh, tend to be, uh, you know, differ among themselves quite profoundly. But for me, really, uh, one of the most important 
uh, ways of contesting uh, this notion of uh, consensus or ijma comes from the Quran itself. Because if you look at the, and I mentioned that actually in the introduction to the volume, if you look at the Quran, there are only four instances in the entire Quran where you get uh, that word from that same root and that same form. You know, it does occur in different derivatives, but they're all negative. So once is in the context of Noah, who is, uh, uh, and his people came to a consensus against him. And, uh, and he was right and they were wrong. You know, there's no doubt about that in the Quran, who God supported and who God did not support. And if you look at the story of Joseph, uh, peace be upon him, you'll see uh, it, it mentioned twice there when his brothers came to a consensus to throw him into the pit. Uh, and then you have the consensus of the magicians of Pharaoh against Moses. So in each and every case, you have the consensus is used as a tool by a powerful majority uh, to bully and uh, uh, oppress a uh, minority who is speaking out for the truth. So uh, the whole principle of consensus needs to be revisited and revisited, uh, uh, you know, very thoroughly and, and rehashed because uh, we should not really be using uh, a term even that is, uh, you know, used so negatively in the Quran. So that's kind of um, uh, how we tend to contest this notion of uh, canonization, or at least uh, some aspect of that, but also by showing the problems within the actual uh, results, the interpretive results as well. Thank you. I hope that Welcome. Yes, yes, I wanted to add that uh, there is also the verse which is very critical of putting someone up as uh, a demigod or even a different god. And uh, um, what we have today is we are being held hostage by a consensus that happened so many hundreds of years ago. And nobody dares to question this uh, well, fake consensus, let's say, or a canonized uh, uh, text that, uh, you know, uh, Abu Hanifa and Malik and the Shafi'i and Ibn Hanbal and all the other great scholars of uh, the past, they were, they are now considered kind of infallible and we cannot go back and, and question them or criticize them or, I mean, Al-Bukhari, if you criticize Al-Bukhari, you, you're doomed. We even have this in, 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 in our Egyptian proverbs. When, when people say, Bukhari, you know, I, I insulted Al-Bukhari. So the, 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 the notion for me was the, I mean, uh, the importance of looking at canonization is that so many extra Quranic uh, material has been placed over and above the Quran, whereas the Quran is the word of God. And there shouldn't be anything that should, you know, um, abrogate it or... Uh, or uh, uh, change it. Uh, and this was uh, especially pertinent in Saur al-Tantawi's chapter uh, that, you know, Fiqh Omar and uh, uh, how the how they met, went into this huge uh, contortions to uh, come up with concepts like Nasr al-Tilawa dun al-Hukm. I mean, there is no verse. And then also to, to that, you know, the, the, the ludicrousy of uh, having this goat eat that verse. I mean, when, when the Quran <laughs> tells you that uh, it is uh, in, in, a, in a protected, uh, it's, it's protected by God and, and, and so on. So, I mean, this is, this is just 
ridiculous. So for me, canonization was not just the uh, the fact that you know um, it's something that is like a gun to our heads today that we we have to do these things just because someone said them a thousand years ago is uh, not acceptable anymore. So when when you call for a decanonization and propose canonization or new processes that are more ethically grounded, you're indicating that the historical process was not ethical. And we you, you give evidence of that in the conclusions that, um, that, that, you're, that you're challenging and interrogating. But can you tell us more about this question of ethicalness, right? Um, the process or the conclusions, interpretations that are being unethical. Um, in what ways, it, it, the, 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 why... I, I, I'm trying to I'm trying to ask this from the perspective of somebody who would be troubled by something like, "Whoa, are you saying that the historical the, the male scholars of the past were not interested in an ethical approach to Islam?" My personal opinion is that no, they were not. But can you tell us more about this? And Yasmin, you can go first this time since Naveen went first last time. Um, I, I wouldn't go as far as saying they were unethical. Uh, I think they were just self-serving in a lot of uh, ways. Uh, and um, it's not that ethics change because essentially the Quran is a book of ethics. Um, uh, so uh, and and they all always argue that Sharia is based on ethics and so on. But but this is not just our idea. I mean, the, this is uh, a new trend because you have so many books talking about this, uh, like um, Ayubi's book about uh, uh, reading the the manuals uh, from an ethical perspective and so on and so forth. Yeah, they just had uh, different ideas. And then also, uh, you know, the the, the accusation that uh, um, female scholars always bring in new concepts like, uh, you know, human rights and children's rights and, and my, uh, minority rights and all of that. Uh, I think that this is ethical and there are lots of books that argue that, you know, human rights are enshrined in the Quran and, and, and children's rights and, and, and so on and so on, and minority rights and so on. So it's just um, the way you would be reading uh, these uh, texts. Uh, I mean, uh, what comes to my mind is uh, the verse, uh, verse 18 uh, of, uh, of um, uh, Surah Al-Zumar, uh, when it says, um, you know, um, um, uh, so you, you have a choice here to, to, to look at things in a positive way and uh, not and to interrogate the, the, the Quran, uh, to, to hear what it is trying to say rather than impose your own ideas on the text itself. And Oh, and I didn't mean that... No, and, and, and this is why we're calling for a decanonization because, you know, these these things, whether they are ethical or unethical or not ethical enough, they are just belonging in a different time. And, and that's why they need to be decanonized. Yeah, no, when I said that, um, you know, critics might say, are you suggesting that the historical process was not interested in ethics in the same way? And my personal opinion is that yeah, they, they were not interested in ethics in the same way that we are today for all kinds of reasons. Um, I didn't mean that they weren't ethical necessarily. I, I do think that there's a lot of, um, there are a lot of things, a lot of the interpretations are unethical. They just didn't think that they were unethical because they, I don't know, they maybe they had different ideas of what was ethical and, and, and such. 
Um, Naveen, would you like to add anything to that? Yeah, um, I think, uh, you know, I would agree with both you and uh, Yasmin that um, they had different understandings of what is ethical and what isn't. But the entire discipline of fiqh um, is actually uh, about ethical reason, uh, reasoning, ethical legal reasoning. So the meaning of the word sharia uh, or the way it's used is actually a combination of both fiqh, uh, b- both law and ethics. So uh, that entire discipline is about applied ethics in some way or other, except that they had different uh, standards and ideas than uh, we do today. Uh, so I think you know every single uh, chapter engages with the uh, question of ethics in some way or other. Uh, certainly Omeima and uh, Mulki's uh, chapter mm-hmm. does that, and uh, they look at ethical ways of, of how to read uh, divorce uh, verses, and they do rely on scholarship by uh, male scholars and the, you know uh, modern scholars, uh, but what I like to point out is also the fact that uh, canonization is actually an ongoing process. It's fluid, so uh, the fact that certain interpretations were uh, enshrined in the distant past doesn't mean that they have to uh, uh, that that they are today. So in canonization studies, people recognize that uh, that. Uh, canonization and decanonization, these are ongoing processes. So I think what this book uh, also highlights is that aspect, that it is a fluid process and that we should um, be less rigid when it comes to the uh, classical uh, canons, whether uh, they have to do with interpretations of law or interpretations of text or uh, also uh, what a model uh, Muslim woman should be like. Uh, in the uh, biographical uh, dictionaries. So it's an ongoing process, and uh, uh, we need to be really responsive uh, to changing times and changing needs. And uh, that's something that the Islamic tradition was very good at in the early centuries, and we really need to retrieve um, this uh, responsiveness in today's context. For sure. Thank you both. Um, so let's go back to the to the to the process of of, of um, writing or putting this book together. So you mentioned earlier the you know how the contributors that, that this, this started off as a was it a conference I forget a workshop, um, and then you added of course more more contributors contributors to the list as well. I'm very fascinated by the fact that there are no men contributors to this volume. Was that a conscious decision? Um, Yes, we can go first. Actually, we had a potential male contributor uh, who was going to write a chapter about uh, Sufism, which is the missing chapter in here. I mean, we tried to cover, you know, the fiqh, the hadith, the Quran, and so on. So we 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 had uh, we had planned a chapter on Sufism, and uh, he kind of didn't like the fact that everyone else was a woman. So he. Is the one who left. We didn't chase him away or anything. He was maybe intimidated. I don't know. But uh, that's why we ended up being a woman thology. Yeah. <laughs> we're, 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 we're not uh, at all averse to working with, uh, with male scholars. And uh, we do that in various different uh, contexts. Uh, Yasmin and I are now participating in a project with uh, Musa Weh. And we are working with male scholars there. However, we do really, really like to give uh, women scholars their voice. And it has to do with uh, uh, them having so 
us having so few opportunities uh, right. to have a voice. Um, I think Kisha Ali was one of those who actually wrote about that fact that uh, male scholars don't tend to cite us uh, as much, that yes, we do pr produce very good scholarship, but it just isn't taken seriously. So, so we really wanted to include a lot of uh, women scholars, uh, but we uh, certainly uh, are not averse at all to including men uh, in our work. And we yeah. do, and we've done it before, and we'll always you know, do that. And then um, did you face, were there any challenges that you faced in putting this volume together? Naveen, you can go first. Uh, yes. Um, initially, uh, it was the whole idea of can, how to structure the volume. So we were in between uh, two different approaches to structuring the volume. Uh, one was Quran. Uh, one was uh, to organize it into three parts. One was Quran and the other dealing with hadith and biographical dictionaries and the third dealing with fiqh. And the other was uh, the way we have it right now, which is uh, responding to the three areas of canonization that we know from our contemporary context here in uh, North America that stem from, you know, Christian traditions, uh, the canonization of texts, the canonization of figures like canonical saints, and the canonization of law. So, um, so we were kind of in between uh, these two approaches, and we uh, started off with the first one. And then uh, as the contributions came in, uh, and also uh, the way we asked our contributors, uh, the way we requested these contributions, we ended up with uh, the second approach, which I think uh, is really new and more novel than the first one that we initially thought of. And it had to do with the importance of uh, uh, the canonization of uh, figures uh, and how that functions as well, because that hasn't been sufficiently studied in the Islamic tradition. And it's uh, also fortunate that we have four articles on that particular aspect, because there isn't a lot uh, about it. Yes, me? Uh, no, I don't have anything to add. Um... To that we uh, all our contributors were great uh, I mean uh, the usual uh, issues with deadlines and not meeting them and having to nag the contributors but they were really uh, fantastic and it was a pleasure to work with all of them and uh, there weren't uh, the problems with uh, you know authors sticking to a particular uh, thing or rejecting a suggestion or so on everyone was very cooperative and it was really a pleasure i would do it all over again oh that's beautiful and yeah. what, what advice might you give to others who are looking to compile an edited volume especially with another colleague so yasmin you can go first um then. i think that one should uh, work with like-minded people because it makes it a lot easier so uh um like uh, you know um agreement on uh, the topic, agreement on the final conclusions. Uh, this is a good thing to start with and then to build on. Um. Uh, I, would, I would add also uh, someone from a different area of expertise. So, and this works out really well with Yasmin and I because I'm more Quranic studies and she's more Hadith so that the other person can contribute uh, a different insight and different uh, strengths. So that would be one, uh, one thing to look out for. Uh, another thing that I think is very, very important is that 
when you ask contributors to contribute to your book, um, to have to actually have your thesis statement, uh, um, you know, just to ensure and, and also uh, the description of what you want this uh, book to be like, and just to know where you're going to place that particular contribution. So it, it flows smoothly and it all kind of revolves around that uh, the one idea, a uh, main idea that you want to communicate. So think uh, very well beforehand. Uh, because that's really what makes a an edited volume cohesive. So mm. that's kind of what I would uh, suggest. And of mm. course, you know, it's so much fun working with contributors. Uh, you know, it's a very, very exciting thing to do. Like I'm really uh, very fortunate and very uh, privileged really to have been able to work with Yasmin and uh, all these amazing contributors to the thing nice. the thing That's is beautiful. that Nivin and I we go back such a long way you know we were friends when we were little when we were little girls because our fathers were best friends so it it was uh, um, very heartwarming for us to to do this together and make our parents proud yes i said that comment was in the acknowledgement i forget it's somewhere that you, that you hope your your mothers are or parents are proud that you're still friends or something that was that was beautiful it was really sweet um so the tradition on the podcast is that before we before we conclude we ask the um guests to tell us about any work that they're currently working on something that they're working on right now that we can look forward to in the near future um so naveen you can go first and tell us about anything you're working on right now Oh, okay. So I think I'll mention um, the new project of Musawe, which is uh, one of the major Islamic feminist networks and a very active one right now. And it's uh, uh, called, um, uh, what's it called again? Uh, Reclaiming Adl and Ihsan in Muslim Marriages. Uh, so it's looking at ethics and jurisprudence of Muslim marriages and uh, how to uh, uh, rethink of Muslim marriages in ways that are ethical and ways that are uh, egalitarian. So uh, my particular chapter in that is uh, dealing with usul al-fiqh, which is ethical legal theory. And uh, I critique the methodologies of uh, ethical legal theory, the main uh, methodologies and how the various different sources are used. Um, and then I reconstruct that methodology and I apply it to uh, the area of marriage. And I'm calling, uh, I'm using what I'm calling a spiritually integrative approach. So that's something to watch out for, uh, that particular book by Musawa, inshallah, which is hopefully forthcoming soon. Yeah. Uh, I also have a chapter in that book looking at uh, the Prophet's example in his own marriages and what he said about marriage in general. But I'm also turning my dissertation into a book which... Uh, hopefully uh, will be entertaining as much as it is uh, scholarly um, um, study about humor in the hadith. So I hope that, uh, I mean, we all need a few laughs in academia because God knows it's sorely lacking. <laughs> For sure. Well, that sounds very exciting. I look forward to both of your works. And um, this is all I've got. Thank you so much to both of you for being here. And of course, for writing this really wonderful book. Um, it's it's a huge contribution to the field, it's to Islamic studies, to gender studies, to all things Islam, all things religion. Thank you. So thank you. Uh, thank you so much for hosting us and for, uh, you know, asking uh, those lovely questions. I really appreciate uh, being invited. Thank you.
All right. So that was my conversation with Yasmin Amin and Naveen Rida about the excellent new book that they have just produced together, Islamic Interpretive Tradition and Gender Justice, Processes of Canonization, Subversion and Change. It's published with McGill in 2020. Thank you so much for listening and I will see you all next month.